Chapter Nine of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, January 2008. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Nine. Sketches of Neighboring Slaveholders There was a planter in the country, not far from us, whom I will call Mr. Litch. He was an ill-bred, uneducated man, but very wealthy. He had six hundred slaves, many of whom he did not know by sight. His extensive plantation was managed by well-paid overseers. There was a jail and a whipping-post on his grounds, and whatever cruelties were perpetrated there, they passed without comment. He was so effectually screened by his great wealth, that he was called to no account for his crimes, not even for murder. Various were the punishments resorted to. A favourite one was to tie a rope round a man's body, and suspend him from the ground. A fire was kindled over him, from which was suspended a piece of fat pork. As this cooked, the scalding drops of fat continually fell on the bare flesh. On his own plantation, he required very strict obedience to the Eighth Commandment. But depredations on the neighbours were allowable, provided the culprit managed to evade detection or suspicion. If a neighbour brought a charge of theft against any of his slaves, he was browbeaten by the master, who assured him that his slaves had enough of everything at home, and had no inducement to steal. No sooner was the neighbour's back turned, than the accused was sought out, and whipped for his lack of discretion. If a slave stole from him even a pound of meat, or a peck of corn, if detection followed, he was put in chains and imprisoned, and so kept till his form was attenuated by hunger and suffering. A freshnet once bore his wine-cellar and meat-house miles away from the plantation. Some slaves followed, and secured bits of meat and bottles of wine. Two were detected, a ham and some liquor being found in their huts. They were summoned by their master. No words were used, but a club felled them to the ground. A rough box was their coffin, and their interment was a dog's burial. Nothing was said. Murder was so common on his plantation that he feared to be alone after nightfall. He might have believed in ghosts. His brother, if not equal in wealth, was at least equal in cruelty. His bloodhounds were well trained. Their pen was spacious, and a terror to the slaves. They were let loose on a runaway, and, if they attacked him, they literally tore the flesh from his bones. When this slaveholder died, his shrieks and groans were so frightful that they appalled even his own friends. His last words were, I am going to hell. Bury my money with me. After his death, his eyes remained open. To press the lids down, silver dollars were laid on them. These were buried with him. From this circumstance a rumour went abroad that his coffin was filled with money. Three times his grave was opened, and his coffin taken out. The last time his body was found on the ground, and a flock of buzzards were pecking at it. He was again interred, and a sentinel set over his grave. The perpetrators were never discovered. Cruelty is contagious in uncivilized communities. Mr. Conant, a neighbour of Mr. Litch, returned from town one evening in a partial state of intoxication. His body-servant gave him some offence. He was divested of his clothes, except his shirt, whipped, and tied to a large tree in front of the house. It was a stormy night in winter. 
The wind blew bitterly cold, and the boughs of the old tree crackled under falling sleet. A member of the family, fearing he would freeze to death, begged that he might be taken down, but the master would not relent. He remained there three hours, and when he was cut down, he was more dead than alive. Another slave, who stole a pig from this master to appease his hunger, was terribly flogged. In desperation he tried to run away, but at the end of two miles, he was so faint with loss of blood he thought he was dying. He had a wife, and he longed to see her once more. Too sick to walk, he crept back that long distance on his hands and knees. When he reached his master's, it was night. He had not strength to rise and open the gate. He moaned and tried to call for help. I had a friend living in the same family. At last his cry reached her. She went out and found the prostrate man at the gate. She ran back to the house for assistance, and two men returned with her. They carried him in and laid him on the floor. The back of his shirt was one clot of blood. By means of lard, my friend loosened it from the raw flesh. She bandaged him, gave him cool drink, and left him to rest. The master said he deserved a hundred more lashes. When his own labor was stolen from him, he had stolen food to appease his hunger. This was his crime. Another neighbor was a Mrs. Wade. At no hour of the day was there cessation of the lash on her premises. Her labors began with the dawn, and did not cease till long after nightfall. The barn was her particular place of torture. There she lashed the slaves with the might of a man. An old slave of hers once said to me, "'It is hell in Mrs.'s house. Peers I can never get out. Day and night I praise to die.'" The mistress died before the old woman and, when dying, entreated her husband not to permit any one of her slaves to look on her after death. A slave who had nursed her children, and had still a child in her care, watched her chance, and stole with it in her arms to the room where lay her dead mistress. She gazed a while on her, then raised her hand and dealt two blows on her face, saying as she did so, "'The devil has got you now!' She forgot that the child was looking on. She had just begun to talk, and she said to her father, I did see Ma, and Mammy did strike Ma so," striking her own little face with her hand. The master was startled. He could not imagine how the nurse could obtain access to the room where the corpse lay, for he kept the door locked. He questioned her. She confessed that what the child had said was true, and told how she had procured the key. She was sold to Georgia. In my childhood I knew a valuable slave named Charity, and loved her, as all children did. Her young mistress married, and took her to Louisiana. Her little boy, James, was sold to a good sort of master. He became involved in debt, and James was sold again to a wealthy slaveholder, noted for his cruelty. With this man he grew up to manhood, receiving the treatment of a dog. After a severe whipping, to save himself from further infliction of the lash, with which he was threatened, he took to the woods. He was in a most miserable condition, cut by the cowskin, half-naked, half-starved and without the means of procuring a crust of bread. Some weeks after his escape, he was captured, tied, and carried back to his master's plantation. This man considered punishment in his jail, on bread and water, after receiving hundreds of lashes, too mild for the poor slave's offence. Therefore he decided, after the overseer should have whipped him to his satisfaction, to have him placed between the screws of the cotton-gin, to stay as long as he had been in the woods. This wretched creature was cut with the whip from his head to his feet, then washed with a strong brine, to prevent the flesh from mortifying, 
and make it heal sooner than it otherwise would. He was then put into the cotton-gin, which was screwed down, only allowing him room to turn on his side when he could not lie on his back. Every morning a slave was sent with a piece of bread and bowl of water, which was placed within reach of the poor fellow. The slave was charged, under penalty of severe punishment, not to speak to him. Four days passed, and the slave continued to carry the bread and water. On the second morning he found the bread gone, but the water untouched. When he had been in the press four days and five nights, the slave informed his master that the water had not been used for four mornings, and that horrible stench came from the gin-house. The overseer was sent to examine into it. When the press was unscrewed, the dead body was found partly eaten by rats and vermin. Perhaps the rats that devoured his bread had gnawed him before life was extinct. Poor Charity! Grandmother and I often asked each other how her affectionate heart would bear the news, if she should ever hear of the murder of her son. We had known her husband, and knew that James was like him in manliness and intelligence. These were the qualities that made it so hard for him to be a plantation slave. They put him into a rough box, and buried him with less feeling than would have been manifested for an old house-dog. Nobody asked any questions. He was a slave, and the feeling was that the master had a right to do what he pleased with his own property. And what did he care for the value of a slave? He had hundreds of them. When they had finished their daily toil, they must hurry to eat their little morsels, and be ready to extinguish their pine knots before nine o'clock, when the overseer went his patrol rounds. He entered every cabin, to see that men and their wives had gone to bed together, lest the men from over-fatigue should fall asleep in the chimney-corner, and remain there till the morning horn called them to their daily task. Women are considered of no value, unless they continually increase their owner's stock. They are put on a par with animals. This same master shot a woman through the head who had run away and been brought back to him. No one called him to account for it. If a slave resisted being whipped, the bloodhounds were unpacked, and set upon him, to tear his flesh from his bones. The master who did these things was highly educated, and styled a perfect gentleman. He also boasted the name and standing of a Christian, though Satan never had a truer follower. I could tell of more slaveholders as cruel as those I have described. They are not exceptions to the general rule. I do not say there are no humane slaveholders. Such characters do exist, notwithstanding the hardening influences around them. But they are, like angels' visits, few and far between. I knew a young lady who was one of these rare specimens. She was an orphan, and inherited as slaves a woman and her six children. Their father was a free man. They had a comfortable home of their own, parents and children living together. The mother and eldest daughter served their mistress during the day, and at night returned to their dwelling, which was on the premises. The young lady was very pious, and there was some reality in her religion. She taught her slaves to lead pure lives, and wished them to enjoy the fruit of their industry. Her religion was not a garb put on for Sunday, and laid aside till Sunday returned again. The eldest daughter of the slave-mother was promised in marriage to a free man, and the day before the wedding this good mistress emancipated her, in order that her marriage might have the sanction of law. Report said that this young lady cherished an unrequited affection for a man who had resolved to marry for wealth. In the course of time a rich uncle of hers died. He left six thousand dollars to his two sons by a colored woman, and the remainder of his property to this orphan niece. The metal soon attracted the magnet. The lady and her weighty purse became his. She offered to manumit her slaves, telling them that her marriage might make unexpected changes in their destiny, 
and she wished to ensure their happiness. They refused to take their freedom, saying that she had always been their best friend, and they could not be so happy anywhere as with her. I was not surprised. I had often seen them in their comfortable home, and thought that the whole town did not contain a happier family. They had never felt slavery, and when it was too late, they were convinced of its reality. When the new master claimed this family as his property, the father became furious, and went to his mistress for protection. "'I can do nothing for you now, Harry,' said she. "'I no longer have the power I had a week ago. I have succeeded in obtaining the freedom of your wife, but I cannot obtain it for your children.' The unhappy father swore that nobody should take his children from him. He concealed them in the woods for some days, but they were discovered and taken. The father was put in jail, and the two oldest boys sold to Georgia. One little girl, too young to be of service to her master, was left with the wretched mother. The other three were carried to their master's plantation. The eldest soon became a mother, and when the slaveholder's wife looked at the babe, she wept bitterly. She knew that her own husband had violated the purity she had so carefully inculcated. She had a second child by her master, and then he sold her and his offspring to his brother. She bore two children to the brother, and was sold again. The next sister went crazy. The life she was compelled to lead drove her mad. The third one became the mother of five daughters. Before the birth of the fourth the pious mistress died. To the last she rendered every kindness to the slaves that her unfortunate circumstances permitted. She passed away peacefully, glad to close her eyes on a life which had been made so wretched by the man she loved. This man squandered the fortune he had received, and sought to retrieve his affairs by a second marriage. But, having retired after a night of drunken debauch, he was found dead in the morning. He was called a good master, for he fed and clothed his slaves better than most masters, and the lash was not heard on his plantation so frequently as on others. Had it not been for slavery, he would have been a better man, and his wife a happier woman. No pen can give an adequate description of the all-pervading corruption produced by slavery. The slave-girl is reared in an atmosphere of licentiousness and fear. The lash and the foul talk of her master and his sons are her teachers. When she is fourteen or fifteen, her owner, or his sons, or the overseer, or perhaps all of them, begin to bribe her with presents. If these fail to accomplish their purpose, she is whipped, or starved into submission to their will. She may have had religious principles inculcated by some pious mother or grandmother, or some good mistress. She may have a lover, whose good opinion and peace of mind are dear to her heart, or the profligate men who have power over her may be exceedingly odious to her. But resistance is hopeless. The poor worm shall prove her contest vain. Life's little day shall pass, and she is gone. The slaveholder's sons are, of course, vitiated, even while boys by the unclean influences everywhere around them. Nor do the master's daughters always escape. Severe retributions sometimes come upon him for the wrongs he does to the daughters of the slaves. The white daughters early hear their parents quarrelling about some female slave. Their curiosity is excited, and they soon learn the cause. They are attended by the young slave-girls whom their father has corrupted, and they hear such talk as should never meet youthful ears, or any other ears. They know that the woman's slaves are subject to their father's authority in all things, and in some cases they exercise the same authority over the men's slaves. I have myself seen the master of such a household, whose head was bowed down in shame, 
for it was known in the neighborhood that his daughter had selected one of the meanest slaves on his plantation to be the father of his first grandchild. She did not make her advances to her equals, nor even to her father's more intelligent servants. She selected the most brutalized, over whom her authority could be exercised with less fear of exposure. Her father, half frantic with rage, sought to revenge himself on the offending black man. But his daughter, foreseeing the storm that would arise, had given him free papers, and sent him out of the state. In such cases the infant is smothered, or sent where it is never seen by any who know its history. But if the white parent is the father, instead of the mother, the offspring are unblushingly reared for the market. If they are girls, I have indicated plainly enough what will be their inevitable destiny. You may believe what I say, for I write only that whereof I know. I was twenty-one years in that cage of obscene birds. I can testify, from my own experience and observation, that slavery is a curse to the whites as well as to the blacks. It makes white fathers cruel and sensual, the sons violent and licentious, it contaminates the daughters, and makes the wives wretched. And as for the coloured race, it needs an abler pen than mine to describe the extremity of their sufferings, the depth of their degradation. Yet few slaveholders seem to be aware of the widespread moral ruin occasioned by this wicked system. Their talk is of blighted cotton crops, not of the blight on their children's souls. If you want to be fully convinced of the abominations of slavery, go on a southern plantation, and call yourself a negro trader. Then there will be no concealment. You will see and hear things that will seem to you impossible among human beings with immortal souls. End of chapter 9